0: On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report
1: asks, how will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time?
0: Learn more at Fetzer.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with psychologist Kimberly Wilson on whole body mental health, one of the most astonishing frontiers we are on as a species. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. You ready for me? Okay. Hi, Kimberly. Hi there. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Um, how are you? I'm I'm fine. Thank you for your patience and care in this. And um, also, I just I have to tell you, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. And I want to just give you a little background to um, how we come to be here
0: today. I have been yeah, because <laughs> literally when the the invitation came in, I was just like, I have no idea why she <laughs> should know of my existence. Right. So that would be great. Yeah. So. So I, for
1: probably the last two years, I have been conducting a kind of global search online because to try to find somebody to speak to this uh, gut-brain axis, the microbiome, I feel like the frontier we're on of understanding our Mm -hmm. bodies and brains Mm -hmm. and the interactivity between them, I think, you know, if we survive the twenty first century, children will learn these things in first grade, right? We, I did. right? Yeah. We will, and so, and I'm just, and I feel like, um, you know, often what we do on the show is, oh, is look at all of these reckonings and callings of being alive in this time. Um, And I feel like there's also there are just there's wondrous knowledge unfolding that actually Mm. is relevant um, to how we can be present to ourselves, to each other and and. And to all that is before us as a species, and so I've been—you know—I've listened in, I've looked at scientists who are working on this, and, mm-hmm. and there—and there are a lot of—and John Cryan, who you've interviewed a couple of times, is, mm-hmm. was one of the most articulate people I found, and also quite funny um, and so
0: lovely and lovely, such a lovely man, yeah.
1: But but they tended—I found that the scientists, because I do interview a lot of scientists, but I found that they tended that they all tend to be very focused on some specific angle, and then mm-hmm. I was so excited to, so I started just not not with this not in mind I lis- I listen to a lot of um, BBC podcasts and so mm-hmm. I found your podcast the the, the newer one um, mm-hmm. made of strongest stuff and I and I and I thought this is it this is the person I've been looking for <laughs> because oh. because you you have a deep knowledge of all of this you're on top of it and you understand how it comes together in our in our bodies and in our lives and um, and 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 why it matters and um so that's so that's what I so I really just want to talk to you about things that I have heard you speaking about um you know this is this is all what I think is coming together in you Mm. and I think it's a service to the rest of us to draw that out
0: (laughs) (laughs) does that make sense it does thank you no that's really lovely and I I'm glad that 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 comes across that I care about it, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's relevant, and I want people to understand it in as practicable a way as possible. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I—I I don't know. Um, I mean, I, you know, we this will also be an occasion to point people in this country also to your book. I don't, I don't, I don't know, you know, how how familiar it is here, but I'm 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 glad mm-hmm. to be doing that. So we won't. We're not going to talk about the book. Um, specifically, I I, I mm-hmm. generally don't do book interviews, but but mm-hmm. we will point people towards it in the beginning and at the end. And I just want you to know that too. Great, and the Thank podcast you. also, which is which I really love. <laughs>
0: Thank
1: um, you. <laughs> um, I can't remember what is coming up this week, but I was so excited when I heard you <laughs> foreshadow it. Was it menopause and over <laughs> the uterus oh, or something? Yes,
0: yeah. ovaries. Ovaries. <laughs> it's, it's so important. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really important conversation and yeah. just fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, so that's the why and. So something that I'm always interested in whoever I'm speaking with whatever the subject is um mm-hmm. kind of tracing you know asking if you could, where how you would trace the roots of the questions that drive you or the passions that drive you in your mm-hmm. earliest life, in the background of your childhood. And as I was writing that down this time, I realized that that probably makes me a little bit like a psychologist. That's <laughs> 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 what you do. Yes. Um, so, yes, yeah, so how would you, you grew up in East London, you had a brother and a sister, but how would you start mm-hmm. talking about these things that consume you now that you see as important and, and, and
0: where they arose in the young Kimberly growing up? <laughs> um, I think it's likely to be, as with all things, a, a combination of things that only seem to make sense when you look back on them mm. um, and start to join the dots. Obviously, in the moment, it didn't really make any particular sense to me. Um, so I guess in terms of, so if we're thinking about the questions that drive me and and some of the main things that I speak about at the moment, really we're talking about the roles of food in our social and emotional lives, but also food and nutrition in, in mental health, brain development, uh, behaviour, and how that extends across society. And I guess on a personal level, I've always been what I what I call a hungry girl. Mm, <laughs> I have yeah. a good appetite. I like food. I've always been interested in food. I grew mm. up with huge, like giant kind of bigger than a Bible thickness uh, cookbooks um, and <laughs> collections that my mum would, would collect. And mm. I would pore over these books and look at the pictures. They were all so glossy and they were all kind of strange, you know, kind of recipes for blancmange and strange French mm. things that were, covered in <laughs> in aspic and stuff. Okay. Um but that was also quite different from the food that I grew up eating because I grew up eating a combination of, I guess, um, kind of West Indian food, but also pretty much processed British food. So there was yeah. this understanding or a realization that food was different depending on where you were mm-hmm. and who you were. Um, and so I guess on some level that was kind of Ticking over in the back of my mind, I think more officially and professionally, it came together when I was working in prisons. And I want, I want to I want to ask you before you get there, though. You, sure. you also
1: there's a very arresting. I believe this is the first sentence of your of your book, um, which is so helpful. Um mm. I grew up with an intimate knowledge of mental illness and neurogenerative disease, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, schizophrenia, motor neuron disease, Guillain-Barré syndrome, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and depression, all run in my immediate family. Mm. Taking a big breath. Um, mm. So, I, I mean, I've also seen you say that you you knew you wanted to be a psychologist when you were sixteen, which makes sense mm. to me with that with that. Uh, With that sentence in mind. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's a way in which I feel like none of us really owns entirely our trajectories. You know, there's no such thing as a a self-made person. And if... I had grown up in a family of musicians, I'm sure that I would be a concert pianist or if I'd grown up in a family of artists, I'm sure that it would have had an impact on my relationship to art and I'd visit galleries more often or something like that. But I grew up with this intimate awareness of of brains that don't work, I guess, or brains Mm -hmm. that aren't working well. So that when I got into school, and we were doing kind of biology lessons. I understood things like myelination and neurodegeneration and um, motor neurons and this sort of stuff. And, and in a that kind of strange way, it gave me a bit of a leg up in terms of understanding aspects of biology mm-hmm. um, and aspects of psychology. So these were subjects that kind of made sense to me quite early on. Uh, and I guess it's it's that... Way in which you just do the things that come easily to you, mm-hmm. and so those things came more easily to me than I suppose they did to to my friends and my peers at the time, and that was the the path that I was and it became on.
1: inquiry, right? They, they, mm. Those questions lodged in you. I and it, and also you, when you were in the Great British Bake Off, you talked, to, you 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 shared kind of that your mother and maybe this explains the cookbooks that were somewhat different from the food was on the table, but that she was mm. a really intuitive baker and that mm. and that baking with her and kind of baking for her when her MS made it hard for her to stand. I, I see this, this connection in your childhood between um, food as healing, not strictly the way you study it now, um, but but there it is. There's that picture. I've,
0: I'm not sure I would use... I see what you mean. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Perhaps not healing. I would say uh, care, mm. um, and uh, also that the f- of of life. You know that kind of function of food, which is mm-hmm. around living and needing to fulfill this very practical life need of nourishment and. Mm energy provision Um, and so yes it was kind of although you know there was a book in my house called foods that harm and foods that heal I I don't know how much science there is (laughs) behind that title now but um it it was that growing up it was much it was a combination of the practical people need to be fed and and food needs to be put on the table but also um of of simple pleasures um, and that, that very quotidian joy and pleasure that mm. comes from eating,
1: mm. yeah, and and so so yes, so you were then walking into a, a, a pretty extraordinary. Was the time you spent at Holloway, Europe's largest women pr- women's prison um, at the time, which is now mm. no longer there. You were a pretty young psychologist at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> Leading the therapy service there?
0: Yeah, I, I was. Um, yeah. And it was... It was. F- everybody reminded me of that um, <laughs> at the time, including um, my therapist at the time. So um, as part of my training, you, you must be in your own therapy. And I would sit with my therapist and she would say, are you sure you mm. want to do this? <laughs> um, you know, it's a very... It's a very demanding job. Um, it's demanding, not just intellectually, but emotionally, in a way that other jobs just are not. Um, and so she would, you know, she would sit me down and, and ask me, "Are you, are you sure?" Um, and now, kind of twenty years on from that question, I can understand her mm. inquiry, <laughs> um, but. The, There was nothing else I wanted to do. And there's nothing else at the moment that I could find more compelling. So it still makes sense for me to do it. Um, So I was very young. Um, I think I was one off, if not the youngest person in my cohort on my training. And when I was asked to lead the service at Holloway, I was still actually a trainee. So I'd started mm. there as one of my kind of final placements. Mm. I'd been working in children's, in a children's charity. And as part of that, I'd been working in a school with primary and secondary age children. Um, and so the work in the charity at the time that was working in the prison was one of my placements. And, um, and then after the, the charity kind of uh, dissolved, the prison NHS service asked me to continue um, running the, running the service. So I kind of moved straight into it. My first job out of my training essentially was working in this, in a forensic setting. Hmm. And uh, I think it it was an extraordinary place to work. Um, What's really interesting about Working in forensic settings, and perhaps particularly about working with the women in forensic settings, is how invisible they are. So Holloway was Europe's largest women's prison, and it was kind of almost centrally located in London, on quite a busy road mm. between an area of London called Camden um and the Holloway Road, both quite kind of busy areas. Yet, I think you would struggle to find anybody even who kind of lived in those areas who could locate it Mm. properly. And for me, that really symbolizes the way that I think prison works as a kind of unconscious for society. It's where Mm. we Mm. put the things or the people that we don't want to think about, that we can disavow our own aggression our own destructive tendencies our own harms our own dangerousness mm. and we can just pretend that they don't exist and we can put them over there and we don't have to think about them and and also i think which is something that i think about a lot at the moment we don't have to think about how the people who are in these buildings got there in the first place you know we don't have to think that a an adult who harms was once a child,
1: hmm.
0: and a child who most likely was harmed.
1: Right, and it's so fascinating that it was there that you started to become aware of this new mm. research um, that made a link between what we put into our bodies and mm. not just not just well-being and behavior, but but violence and reduction of violence.
0: Mm. In a way that I still think should have shaken the foundations of at least the prison service, if not the justice system more generally. And so part of my job running the service was really understanding an allocation of risk. So I would have to sit in a weekly meeting with the security department and other heads of health services to think about who were the most um, essentially risky people who were coming in um, perhaps from courts or from other prisons um, and people who might be kind of at risk themselves or others making sure that they were allocated proper supervision and support that they were known to services and so part of the role which is on top of what you do when you're kind of thinking about someone psychologically in terms of the therapeutic need was to think about the kind of additional risk of harm and safety um and one of the things about women in prison is that even though women i think accounted for something like six percent of the total prison estate at that time they the self-harm that women Mm. inflicted accounted for something close to 50% of the total recorded self-harm in the prisons. It was an extraordinary number, um, an extraordinarily high figure of women who were harming themselves. Mm. Um, And this kind of internalisation of violence, which is more commonly how women will express their violence compared to Mm -hmm. men who are more likely to externalise. Um, So I was constantly thinking about risk, constantly thinking about danger and how to keep people safe um, as much as possible. And I heard about this piece of research and it was a replication of an earlier study. So I think this paper came out in 2012 and the earlier study had been done in 2002. And it was a paper from the Netherlands Ministry of Justice. And it demonstrated that providing, and this was male prisoners in this study, male prisoners with a broad spectrum micronutrient, nutrients, so vitamins and minerals, compared to placebo, so they had a placebo group who were mm. getting basically a, a dummy pill, reduced violence by over 30%. And actually in the, in the, the Dutch study, um, it was a, a huge gap so in the in the 2002 british study it was about 37% but in the dutch study the placebo group got worse so the difference in terms of objective mm. incidence of violence was something closer to some, to to 45% yeah which is incredible which is incredible mm. the idea that and especially when you're thinking about the risks in prison so uh, and, and how those risks spill out both across the prison estate and and into society. So if you've got someone, for example, who is in severe distress and they're either at risk of harming themselves or harming somebody else, then someone who has to go on watch needs to have a member of the health staff with with them at all times. So you have to take a nurse off the health wing, for example, and station them outside the person's cell to keep a watch on them at all times. Mm. So that is a, a staffing cost of staffing demand. It's a, um, a kind of fiscal demand. It makes a difference to the, the way that the wing works. A prison that is dangerous or more violent is much harder to, to staff because nobody wants to work there. People will leave much more quickly. And of course, prisons that are more dangerous are less likely to be able to rehabilitate people right. so that they end up being more dangerous on the outside.
1: Well, and also... There's violence on the outside as well, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we're learning that connection, that has very wide-reaching um, implications. It,
0: it really does. And what's extraordinary, this is the thing that really every time widens my eyes and and, and heightens the pitch of my voice, is that we now have at least four studies on Violence in prisons being significantly attenuated with nutritional supplementation um, in different locations across the world. We have studies in, so literally we have America, the UK, um, Europe, so the uh, Dutch study, and also in Singapore, Mm -hmm. showing this consistent Roughly thirty percent reduction in, in in objective incidents of violence, and the point of the objective part is that it's not simply asking people about subjective ratings: how angry do you feel, how violent do you feel. It's looking at the the book at the end of the wing where. Um, fights or protests are marked down and counting them, you know. So this is somebody else coming in and counting how many acts of violence there were um, on a wing or on a unit. And what is extraordinary about this is that if it were a drug being introduced to the population, right,
1: right, if it were a pill, <laughs> right. If it if were an a pill. antidepressant or an anti-anxiety if, exactly, medication, exactly. If, if
0: I were a pharmaceutical company mm-hmm. and I were, you know, I've, I've got a, a new drug called Violess or yeah. something, yeah. Um, and I'm I mean, I'm telling you, it's going to reduce your the need for anger management trainings, or you know, make your clients, your patients, karma, um, and it's, it works at a rate of 30%. I would need just, I think, one or two trials demonstrating efficacy in order to get this cleared by the FDA. Um, and and it would I be could, so much more expensive. <laughs> it would be enormously expensive. Um, and so, and, and it would be, we would be having discussions about yeah, it in national yeah. newspapers yeah. we would be we would be wondering if we could roll it out to children with behavioral yeah. difficulties yes. and and here we are 20 years on mm-hmm. and certainly the UK home office who partly funded that first the the 2002 study have done absolutely nothing with the outcomes of this research
1: all right so so you have <laughs> gone on to to be on, in this ongoing investigation, and I think application of, and also you have become kind of an, a public educator on the science behind all of this. Um, and it's new, and yet, I feel like e- even in these 20 years, you know, I, mm-hmm. I I know that, I mean, I've been hearing people talk about microbiome for a few years. It is very new. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite intrigued when I was just looking around, you know, there is actually a paragraph on because it has anything new is contested right it's suspect and this is revolutionary to say you know a few centuries after the enlightenment in which we have built western societies um, idolizing the brain and the mind to discover Mm -hmm. a new organ which is called a second brain Um, but Mm -hmm. you know I found on the National Center for Biotechnology Information of the NAS here you know the past decade has seen a paradigm shift in our understanding of the brain gut axis there's an exponential growth of evidence um, of bi-directional interactions between gut and microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, a comprehensive model is emerging that integrates the central nervous, gastrointestinal, and immune systems with this newly discovered organ. And then it talks about remarkable potential shown in studies for novel treatments— Not only in gastrointestinal disorders, but psychiatric and neurological disorders, including Parkinson's disease, autism, anxiety, depression, among many others. You have been wrapping your mind around this and and also bringing it into your practice, I believe, into your writing. So Mm -hmm. just – but it is a new word. I feel like, you know, we have to to kind of put this lexicon out there as part of our collective inheritance. So Mm -hmm. how would you start to describe what is the microbiome?
0: So yes, the microbiome is really the population of microorganisms. And we hear a lot about the bacteria, but there are also kind of viruses and archaea and yeasts, the fungi hanging out in there as well. So this population of diverse microorganisms that, you know, so that everything has a microbiome. So your skin has a microbiome, your mouth has a microbiome, all sorts of, you know, all over the body has its own microbiome, but the microbiome we tend to be Talking about in in this type of conversation is the gut microbiome, so the the microorganisms that populate the the colon, and they aren't just kind of squatters; <laughs> they haven't just kind Perfect. of moved in. They sure. they do earn their keep, um, and they earn their keep um, really in this quite beautiful symbiotic relationship, which is they are able to digest and make. Good use of parts of our diets that we can't digest. So uh, largely fiber um, and polyphenol compounds that we don't have the enzymes to digest. They get down into the colon and the microorganisms can ferment it and their metabolites are uh, provide a whole range of beneficial uh, compounds and and, and uh, activities for our bodies so including the production of vitamins the synthesis of short chain fatty acids the synthesis of neurotransmitters um that don't necessarily kind of cross into the brain, but can communicate, we think, with the brain. Um, the Helping to train our immune systems and keep our immune systems functioning well. All of this is the symbiotic relationship between the microorganisms in our guts, our diets, and our overall, overall kind of health and, and genetics.
1: So when 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 we talk about an an organ, is the organ the gut microbiome, or or is the entire is is all are all the microbiome, <laughs> whatever the whatever the plural is, a microbiome? Is this is the skin? Are the, is the micro uh, is, the, is the microbiome on your skin and in your mouth also part of that organ in your gut? Or or when we talk about the organ, are we really just
0: talking about the gut? I think. It- probably depends on the context but it really doesn't i think perhaps make too much sense to think about the gut without thinking about the microbes that live there because really other than the job of the microbiome what happens in the gut is largely the absorption of water from faecal matter um uh, it's, okay. it's really about what the microbes are doing there in conjunction are, with the immune cells. That is the gut cells. function. The yeah. microbiome
1: is the gut function. It, and then the, uh, another, uh, just to kind of lay all of this out, another mm. core um, <laughs> piece of vocabulary and uh, and and reality that 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 we need to know is um, what I've heard you describe as
0: your fave, the vagus nerve. <laughs> <laughs> it is um yes so the vagus nerve is the it's technically the 10th cranial nerve which means it's a nerve that comes out of the kind of of the brain of the uh, out of the skull and it is this beautiful i have an image of it in my book um it's beautiful It Wandering nerve, and Mm -hmm. it's called vagus from the Latin root of of kind of vague vagabond wandering, and it does wander wanders throughout your body. So it it goes down the back of your throat, it loops up in up around the ears, crosses down behind the, the the voice box, it connects into your heart, into your lungs, into your liver, into your stomach, into all of your major organs, before kind of rounding out. In, in the gut. So it's this direct physical relationship between the body and the brain. And, and I think the main, one of the most important things to understand is that most of the direction of information is going from the body up. So it's not simply that it's about the brain telling the body what to do. The vagus nerve seems to be the main way in which the brain is getting an understanding of the internal conditions of the body Mm -hmm. in order to interpret that and then to make a decision about a behaviour. So it's this constant taking into account of the information that's happening inside the body, you know, largely unconsciously, to... Make a decision about what you should do next. And the reason that that's so important, I think, is about understanding that relationship between that and our emotionality. Mm -hmm. Because our emotionality is is anchored in our bodies. And part of that is going to be about what your body is telling your brain about how, uh, how the situation or the contextual information is being perceived and understood.
1: And you know, I've seen the map, and it's wonderful. And I've also heard you on 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 your podcast on on BBC Radio Four. We uh, made of stronger stuff. Like just kind of describe this root <laughs> of of the the vagus nerve. Um, it, it, what's so interesting about it? Also, just to kind of step back and think about, mm. you know. The, this is language that is new it's science that it's that is new but mm. it's knowledge that we've had right so if I would say it to someone you know if, if we might have a very ordinary conversation about I was nervous right mm-hmm. I felt nervous what are mm-hmm. the components of that as you say it goes through the the, the throat my throat tightens up right your mm-hmm. voice gets strained your stomach feels queasy <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean we we have a experiences of those connections
0: um we do and it's it's partly the way in which we have disconnect or or disembodied psychology or emotionality from the rest of the organism Mm -hmm. which has landed us I think in uh, not I guess a lot of hot water that it's it's really undermined our ability I think first to understand what we're feeling and how we're feeling but also certainly thinking about therapeutically it's meant that for the last 400 years since Descartes set up his dualism we have been ignoring I think therefore I am I think that's it I think
1: that's a soundbite of what Descartes (laughs) meant but yes it's it's the soundbite we've lived
0: with (laughs) And and in an extraordinary way, because Mm -hmm. what we don't really think about about that statement is actually Descartes was setting out his case for the existence of the soul. He was, you know, he was a very uh, devout Catholic and he was trying to make his argument that God exists. And so for Descartes, I think Therefore I Am was his statement that so he kind of went through this, this series of refutations. So he said, look, I, 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 I'm going to dismiss anything that I can doubt. And so he looks around and he says, well, I think the world exists, but I mean, when I'm dreaming, I think the world exists. So maybe the world doesn't exist. Maybe the world is an illusion. I will dismiss that. I don't. I can't be sure that the world exists. And then he does the same for his body. He says, well, I think my body exists, but what about phantom limb syndrome? So people who have amputations and they're still experiencing pain or, or sensation in the, in the lost limb. Well, so I, I have reason to doubt the existence of my body. So I'll be done with that. And so he finally gets back to this point where he says, well the only thing I can be sure of is that I am I am having doubts. Something exists that is doubting. And therefore, that there must be something that can doubt. And he considered that something to be the mind, which for him was synonymous with the soul, which for him was a proof that God exists. If I doubt, then who created me? I couldn't have created myself, he surmises. Mm-hmm. I must have been created by God. So it was a kind of setting out of this philosophical... Uh, question, but it was hugely um, influential on other spheres of of existence and and life and uh, professional and academic life, including medicine and what later became psychiatry and psychology. So that we understood the mind to be separate from the brain. We disembodied the mind huh. from the organ that underpins it and we are I think we are only just coming out of that phase and it's partly the research around the microbiome nutritional psychiatry that is helping us to to bring back together to reunite the mind the brain and the body yeah
1: to reunite ourselves our sense Mm. of ourselves I mean also in terms of um you know application or therapeutic implications if we understand these connections we can also i mean if, if, and no, no, no mm-hmm. this is a lot of what you're working on then we can mm. we can have some agency in in regulating in in tending um, tending this
0: absolutely dynamics. and and not just in terms of individual self-care and management of, of own risks, but in terms of treatment. So one of the, the big issues at the moment the, the very, very big concerns in terms of things like rates of depression, so depression rates yeah. are going up and up and up and prescription rates are going up and up and up, but recovery rates aren't great. Most people who will have a diagnosis of, of depression, 50% will continue to have symptoms. Yeah. And thirty percent in some um, in some assessments, thirty percent of people with a diagnosis of depression have what's termed treatment-resistant depression. So after several different types of antidepressant medication and maybe rounds of therapy and, and sorts, all of these sorts of things, they will continue to have symptoms. So even though we've had these apparently effective medications and treatments people aren't getting better so we've had to kind of reassess our understanding of the causes of depression and this comes us back to, this brings us back to the dualism because and and also the serotonin hypothesis but um you know it's it's causing people to have a, a researchers to rethink the understanding of depression and we certainly think that for some people their depression is largely driven by Immune activation or inflammation is this contribution of the body. You know, it's not just about the way that you think or about unprocessed trauma. I'm a psychologist. These things are important. But we have to bring the body into the conversation because for some people, the major contributing factor of their depression isn't simply going to be their experiences. It's going to be about the underlying biological processes that are driving this this difficulty for them, and that means we have to include the body in our understanding of what happens in psychology and psychiatry. Right, and include the body
1: holistically, not just in terms of serotonin reuptake. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so I mean, let's and that and that brings us to food, um, among other things. It brings us to food. Um, it. I mean, all of this is giving a whole new meaning. To this thing that any of us might have heard our grandmothers say, "You are what you mm-hmm. eat. You mm-hmm. are what you eat." Um, if we ha- this new knowledge, this func- how this functions, then then we understand the importance of how we fuel and nourish and feed the gut and mm-hmm. our system. And so, I hear you. You know, you are working again to add to our lexicon in new fields: new nutritional <laughs> neuroscience, nutritional psychiatry. Um, I've also seen you use the phrase "whole." whole body body, mental mental health health.
0: right yeah that is my approach this is how I think we should be considering mental health it doesn't make whether we're talking about kind of literal physical sense it does or philosophical sense to consider the brain is independent from the body so I practice whole body mental health
1: Mm -hmm. um you know uh Let's see where you know. I I will also say um, mm. that I, th- I think one of the well let me now let me do that a little bit later. I no okay <laughs> sorry I have all these notes I have all these white places I want to go with you. Um, sometimes when people write about you, um, you know, have written. Have interviewed you urban about you in the u k um, they will they will they will comment on the fact that you know you 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 became known to many people there and probably here through um, the great british bake off mm. being a finalist in that and so here's mm. some something a reporter wrote <laughs> in The Times thankfully she sees no compromise between being a lover of cake and safeguarding your brain health <laughs> so which i think I think is important because i think sometimes often when we step into this and now of course not necessarily with all of this context but there is a new awareness that we have been eating badly mm. and and that we can take charge of this and some of that brings its own kind of stress and also reductionism to our mm-hmm. relationship to food mm-hmm. and and you don't do that right you're not you're not doing no. that you are saying you can make this what was your your famous pecan and rosemary caramel apple pie <laughs> like you can <laughs> enjoy your pie and your cake and that doesn't have to be the equivalent of the terrible things we've done across mm. the last 50 years especially in the west to make food mm. really food that is not food food, food mm. fake food that is bad for you
0: yeah and it's really about i think disentangling the contributions of food ink, I suppose, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of food manufacturing, uh, food production, industrialization of food and the drive for commercial profit in food and individual intake. Um, And I think a lot of the conversation around poor diets places the emphasis and the totality of the responsibility unfairly on the individual when actually there's a greater contribution
1: mm-hmm.
0: made by government policy, institutional nutrition, so what we're feeding people in schools, in hospitals, in prisons, um, and the, the role of advertising and those sorts of things on, on yeah. food.
1: Even even mundane things like when you check out of Almost any supermarket. Um, you will, s- when you're standing in line, mm-hmm. or right at the counter, where you will probably stop, possibly for the first time in your in your in your shopping journey. Mm-hmm. You will be standing surrounded by the cases full of candy, right? <laughs> sugary things. Yeah.
0: And well in the UK we had quite a serious campaign about that and they they moved, they removed oh, the sweets that. and they replaced yes. them with nuts. So yeah that, you know, hasn't that was not kind of Yeah. <laughs> oh I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um no exactly. And what's really interesting is that people will argue and they will say yes, but you have the choice as to whether you pick mm-hmm. up the sweets or not. But actually the whole point is that supermarkets employ and have done for decades psychologists who understand the nature of of nudges, of behavioural nudges, of the role of uh, the types of colours and the types of uh, lettering and the characters we use to make food appealing in the formulation of the types of foods that we're eating. You know, all of that is assessed to create a food product which is as rewarding, mm-hmm. as is possible, and certainly much more rewarding in terms of the, the impact on your taste buds and the impact on your brain and your desire to eat more of it and the impact that it has on your appetite, much more so than you know a, a whole food, a moderately palatable whole food will be. And so it's not simply that we're sending people out into a fair playing field no. because actually the the odds are stacked against people in terms of choosing foods they're going to be nourishing and, and beneficial for them but on top of that the the thing we really must come back to is that we tend to eat the things that we remember so it's going to be the foods that we ate in childhood the taste profiles that we ate early on and even some research is showing you know, the the mother eats, primes the baby's taste buds later on.
1: Right.
0: This is going to be impacting the types of foods that people find palatable or not. And so it's... Again, it's a bit unfair to say to someone either in adolescence or in adulthood, well, you know, you need to change the foods. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because actually, in a way, they've been programmed Mm -hmm. since childhood to enjoy a certain sense of certain type or profile of foods. And we know that from around the age of five, the opportunity to retrain or introduce new foods becomes much, much smaller. It's Mm -hmm. much, much more difficult. Possible, but much, much more difficult.
1: And and there are clear connections now between diet and depression, correct? Mm-hmm. Diet and depression and um well, I mean let's just start with that because that is just so prevalent. I'm assuming anxiety mm-hmm. as well, which and and I you know and I think um also the, what Oh, what so kind of bears reflection is the generational <laughs> passage of these things? I mean, you just said, mm-hmm. you know, yes, there's what you ate as a child, which is what your parents gave you, um, but there's also the effect coming back to the microbiome that this all mm-hmm. has on us, that then crosses generations, that becomes mm-hmm. structural.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's. I understand why you gave a big sigh there. (laughs) It is, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So in in terms of depression, what we have are a range of uh, pieces of evidence in different parts of the scientific literature. So largely at the moment, a lot of the big studies are on epidemiology and cohort studies. So following lots and lots of groups of people and either looking at them and cross-section, so at at a single point in time, or looking at them over time longitudinally. longitudinally. So uh, assessing them at baseline and having an understanding of what kind of foods they're eating, and then following them up years later, five, seven, 11 years later, and then looking at the incidence of depression in relation to the types of foods they're eating and then controlling for other factors. And what the epidemiological evidence shows us is that the more you adhere, generally, the more you adhere to a healthy diet. And healthy is really what's traditional for your nation. Okay. So b- broadly, we can just say a whole food diet. So mm-hmm. whole grains, nuts, seeds, fish, leaner meats, yes. uh, fruits and vegetables, that kind of thing. Um so, but the pro- but,
1: processed foods, would that's not our nation. That's a No, <laughs> that's, that's, that's food ink mani- that's that's layered industry. over a nation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay.
0: Non-industrial right. whole foods. Right. Um, the more you adhere to your nation's guidelines for a healthy diet, the, the lower your risk or the more protection you have from later development of depression. And that's when, uh, even when you're controlling for things like income, uh, family status, you know, the type of job you have and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's the epidemiological data. And we have uh, an understanding of how that might work from in... um, animal study data. So it might be about the lack of fiber having an impact on immune function and inflammation. It could be about the role of depletion of nutrients because the more processed the food becomes, the less, uh, the more depleted it becomes in, in nutrients like B vitamins, which are essential for brain health, like omega-3 fatty acids, which are essential for the structural properties of, of brain cell membranes and so forth. So we could be talking about the impact of nutritional deficiencies. Um, We could be talking about the impact of blood sugar spikes on cortisol production and how that affects your brain and your mood. So there are a range of ways that it could be working. And then there are now a handful of intervention studies. So the, the one that most people will have heard of at the SMILES trial, but there are some others and other replications showing that when you take a group of people, who, are, who already have a diagnosis of depression, who have already been in treatment either with uh, medication or psychotherapy or both, and you improve their diets, people get better. You receive, they have a reduction in the severity of their depression. And some people, certainly in the SMILES trial, uh, were in re- technically in remission from depression after 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And what's important about, you know, it's a small study, it was under 40 people so you know we can't uh, make huge generalizations about it but what is important is first is that it was an intervention study um and that there was a control group but also that these were people who were already in treatment so they were already having the frontline number one treatments for right. that nation australia for for depression mm-hmm. and it was only with the improvement of their diets that they saw this kind of significant improvement in their depression outcomes. So bringing this all together, yes, we have... At least a compelling case for more research, but certainly for g- greater understanding of what's happening in relation to the role of food and nutrition in in our brain and mood health
1: and and in in nutritional neuroscience and nutritional psychiatry, I mean you also are a practicing psychologist are, mm-hmm. I, I, I am also aware of of professionals who are bringing this knowledge into how they work with patients I mm. mean so that's not a study, but I mean, do you, are you mm-hmm. also having mm-hmm. this experience um, with actual people?
0: Yeah. Who, so one of the, mm-hmm. the, the way that I work mm-hmm. is to, as I say, whole body mental health. And so as well as doing a you know, a, a psychological assessment on or a therapeutic assessment, as all psychologists will do, I will ask my patients for a sleep diary. I will uh, f- for five days, a five day sleep diary, and I will ask them for a at least a three day uh, food diary. And I, I have a degree in nutrition and I have access to Nutritix, which is a nutritional assessment software. So I, I personally am able to have a look at how they're eating. And if I suspect then that Part of their eating is contributing to how they're feeling. I have a dietitian that I work quite closely with, who I'm able to refer them to, so they're working with a network of people to support their mental health. So it's about, I think, understanding not just because this is the what happens at the moment. It's you'll go to your GP, and in your eight-minute uh, appointment with them, they have to make. Simply a simple assessment of whether or not you are depressed. It's a very binary assessment. Yes or no, depressed or not. And GPs then are under huge amount of pressure to do something. You know, they either, if you're depressed, they either have to send you away with nothing or a referral for therapy, which in the UK at the moment, the average waiting time for uh, NHS therapy is six months for an adult. So you're either putting put on a waiting list and you have to hope that you'll be okay, or they have to give you something. Um, Whereas, fortunately for me, I have the luxury then of actually doing a much deeper assessment and saying to people, "Okay, you're depressed. Let's see if we can understand what is contributing to how you feel, how much of it is the fact that you get four hours sleep per night. And can we address that? How much of it might be that you are surviving on chocolate cupcakes and coffee? How can we improve that? And then how much of it is about the way that you think or the quality of your relationship or this thing in your past that you haven't been able to face? And that's going to give us a much better opportunity to... To hit the right target, right? If we can mm-hmm. understand what the causes are, then we have a much better opportunity to intervene in an effective way.
1: Um, this is a this is just a specific question, but it was something that struck me when I looked at. Um, you know, I think stress is also something that's all around us and in us, and and we live in it. We <laughs> these last few years and mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. we live we live in a an unimaginably stressful world right and um, that too is all is, is part of our experience of the world uh, often below the level of consciousness one of the things that I found so interesting I was reading you I think this is from one of your blogs is that uh, the fight or flight. So we're living in a state of uncertainty and very mm. reasonable fear about all kinds mm-hmm. of things, right? And so that's our fight or flight response. I the amygdala actually where the vagus nerve goes through the amygdala, right? And one of the things you, you pointed out, this is so interesting to me about food, is that mm. when we're in that fight or flight mode, when our amygdala is in charge, which I think for a lot of us is a lot of the time right now, mm-hmm. um, it, it shuts down digestion. But also that mm-hmm. the brain is a very hungry organism, and I think I'm saying this right, that the brain will actually take the nutrition it needs to be fighting, which is not necessarily what we need to be grounded and healthy. And I'm not sure that I'm paraphrasing that correctly.
0: Um, so I wonder if you're talking about the kind of um, triage theory of nutrient kind of allocation, So, um, which I think is... Relevant and it's, yes, mm-hmm. it's particularly relevant to stress. Mm-hmm. So, your brain is an extraordinarily hungry organ and it is, you know, it really punches above its weight in terms of the number, the amount of calories it needs in relation to its proportion of body weight. So, the very, very famous figure you will hear lots and lots of people say is your brain is about 2% of your overall body weight. But it uses somewhere between 20 and 25% of your energy when your body is at rest. So of the roughly 2,000 calories per day that your body needs. That it's our brain burning those calories, which is fascinating. A big chunk of that, the biggest proportion of that is, is, is your brain. And with that comes a huge nutrient demand. You need nutrients to make dopamine. You need nutrients vitamin C, B12, phosphorus to make serotonin, you need these, you need choline from eggs to make acetylcholine. So you need nutrients just for your brain to function well, you need fatty acids and choline to make the, the membranes and, and for your nerves to signal and, and, you know, talk, communicate with one another. So that's your normal, if you assume that's your normal kind of distribution of nutrients. But what happens when you're stressed is that that is your body's alarm signal. It is the emergency signal. It is shut everything down and focus on survival signal. And so what will happen is that your stress hormones also need nutrients, right? Your mm. stress hormones mm, are okay. also composed of nutrients. And so if you've got, say, let's just give an arbitrary number, you've got a unit of 10, 10 nutrition units coming in, And that's what you need every day to function, for your brain to function well. When you're in a stress situation, then if your stress hormones need five, they're going to take that, which leaves your brain with less than it needs. So your stress hormones get first dibs, first allocation, because it's a survival system on those nutrients, which is going to leave your brain and the rest of your body depleted. And this seems to be one of the reasons or this is kind of one of the theories underlying why Uh, we see an improvement in stress management with nutritional supplementation. So if you read the literature around uh, nutritional management of stress, you will find that quite a, I don't know if I'm allowed to say brand names. Um, There's a a very famous effervescent um, B vitamin supplement, um, which has, Lots of research showing that it will help you to manage your stress. And Julia Rutledge, um, out in New Zealand, is a researcher who has found that a broad spectrum micronutrient, when given to people in acute distress, so it was following the um, the shootings in mm. um, New Zealand. In New Zealand. Mm-hmm. The people who got the nutrients were less likely to develop PTSD and had lower self-report measure, measures of stress and anxiety. And one of the possible mechanisms is that their brains were supported not just in managing the stress response, but then given additional nutrients in, to, in order to manage the rest of things anyway, you know, the rest of the everyday normal functioning of the brain. And again, this is quite useful information for a planet that's in that's been in crisis. I mean, I would yes, say yes. just for the last two years, but with the invasion of Ukraine, it's incredibly stressful, certainly in Europe at the moment. Yeah. This is important information in terms of how we, the strategies that are available to us to manage our stress on an everyday, everyday basis.
1: And kind of, you know, understanding this as a gener- that that we've been a few genera. I, mean, I mean, really, I think since the fifties, sixties. I mean, that's over half a century. We've been in the West, and now we have we have taken our pathologies to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. Um, yeah. We've been um, not. We haven't been eating. We haven't been. Mm-hmm. We haven't been practicing whole body mental health. We mm-hmm. we, we haven't been eating. Well, we've messed up our microbiomes. I mean, I'm curious when you look at you know our world also, which again, there's so many things to point at, but there's also um, just generally this crisis of depression and anxiety, um, and 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 very much so in the young. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And there's part of me that studies. All, or that looks at all of this not not as a professional study, but just you know, have tried to inform myself. That says, you know, I mean, I'm the generation who grew up of parents born, you know, got married in the '50s. The discovery of, you know macaroni and cheese out of a box, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I mean, we didn't actually, you know, I, th- I think iceberg lettuce is the closest thing I got to anything actually green from the ground. <laughs> um, I ate a lot of cheese whiz, and we drank um, Coke or Dr. Pepper with every meal. Everyone I knew mm-hmm. did this in the middle of America. This is not how I eat now, um, mm-hmm. but... I it just it's, it strikes me as a way that, that we don't we don't we don't bring this perspective and this knowledge into our our public um, deliberation and investigation mm. of of you know what we how we've distorted our bodies and, and and that is that is being passed on generationally but and if we don't bring that analysis in then we also don't address um, what can be addressed fully mm.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of my big concerns is this, the role of, so I guess we should start with saying that, of course, these aren't the only, nutrition isn't the only cause and, and cure of of mental health concerns. And I think we need to, again, not, we need to be careful not to lay the responsibility fully the individual the, a lot of yeah. the things that make us sick and who, that make us uh, stressed and overwhelmed are the conditions of our environment this is about poverty and it's about policy yes. and it's about access to healthcare and green yeah. space and living wages and we call decent here foods, pensions food and safety and when people all of that. food deserts right Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose if we're thinking about the contribution of food to that, I'm thinking more and more about the foundations. So with everything, you know, whether it's a kind of traditional, what we call traditionally a physical mental health condition or a a physical condition or a mental health condition, the earlier you can intervene, the better, particularly for Mm -hmm. mental health, the sooner you can get an intervention in as soon as you get someone into treatment the better the outcomes um, but my concern now is that the the very poor quality of the average diet is contributing to the the kind of poor architecture or the greater structural vulnerability of brains in the first place yeah and and this is going to be I think, a huge risk. This is something that um, a professor here, Michael Crawford, has been talking about since the seventies, um, in particular in relation to the availability and the population intake of, of essential fatty acids, which are literally structural components of the brain, um, and the the acceleration, the uptake of DHA, one of these fatty acids it's it increases up into the age of two so from conception to the age of two and then it stabilizes and so it's really important that those foundations are laid down in the mother's diet um during pregnancy and uh during breastfeeding if she breastfeeds Mm -hmm. and And even before pregnancy
1: right even and before that yes
0: ideally absolutely Mm -hmm. so her her fatty acid profile at conception might be really really important Mm -hmm. um but we know certainly in the UK that we have very very low population intakes of these foods and all their nutrients so we know so in the UK for example the NHS the national health service recommends that everybody should eat two portions of fish per week of which one should be uh, fatty fish so mackerel and herring and those mm-hmm. sorts of things um but we know that the average adult in the UK is getting one portion of fish a month. Mm-hmm. And less than 5% of children are getting the recommended intake of, of fatty fish. And it's it's very unlikely that they're supplementing. And those are growing so
1: brains, right? Those, those are, are forming are brand brains. Brand
0: new, mm-hmm. rapidly developing brains mm-hmm. that aren't getting the structural components required for good brain architecture and resilience. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at these increasing rates of depression in developmental disorders in children in externalizing behaviors in mood and affect disorders and we're looking around and we're wondering why children seem to be so unwell and increasingly unwell and we lay the blame at social media which certainly does need to take some of the blame and and the various stresses that come with modern life we must i think be thinking about. The structural foundations. How, if we're thinking, you know, almost about buildings, how strong are the Mm -hmm. foundations? If the stresses are going to come anyway, how strong are the foundations? And the foundations of a healthy brain lie in a healthy diet.
1: So your book is a contribution to that. I mean, it really (laughs) is full of. It's it's very practical. I, I I and 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 I I recommend it. And and I also want to just take this this last kind of half hour we have to think about. Mm. You know. So we've laid out some of some of some of the knowledge and some of. Um, the of, the of the deleterious <laughs> effects of the knowledge not being with us. And now so the question is really is really practical and it is philosophical. It is embodied mm. how to live. So how to live. Mm. Um, you know, I I I very much like the uh the kind of tagline of your or descriptive paragraph of your podcast Made of Stronger Stuff, which you do with a physician, a journey around Mm -hmm. the human body asking what our insides can reveal about our lives Mm -hmm. and the world around us. Um, I mean, the truth is we don't yet know quite what makes for a healthy biome. There's so much Mm -hmm. that we're learning, which is also the exciting Mm -hmm. part of this. But, But how would you start to talk to people about just kind of basic... Things to start to think about in terms of how mm-hmm. we live, and I, I'm 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 appreciating that language of how we live. Kind of going back to you talking about food, growing up in your in your home, um, that it it was it was a it was about life, right? And mm. that that even is a reorientation from food mm-hmm. as a, as a consumer product. I think.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I think there is uh, something of a a reorientation that needs to happen, which is for us, I think, to remember or to consider that we are animals. Because I think in a way we try to escape the part of the human that is related to the rest of the natural world. Um, And we try... You know, we we feel like we have thought our way out and off the savannah Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and therefore that we can think our way out of, of everything else. And our brains are extraordinary and they have some wonderful capabilities, but they are made of fundamental stuff and they are made of fundamental stuff that we have been eating for hundreds of thousands of years. And therefore, you know, the last hundred years is not going to be enough time for us to feel as though we can somehow, we have somehow subsumed our humanity or subsumed our kind of organicness uh, and that our bodies can just thrive on anything they cannot. So um, to think about the things that made our brains and our best understanding of that is that our brains were made by taking in a wide range, our brains and bodies were made by taking in a wide range of plant foods, um, some protein, and and probably because large parts of human existence were coastal or around um, lakes, you know, a significant intake or a uh, a consistent intake of omega-3 fatty acids, fatty fish, and or to supplement with those nutrients. So it's... Really, there's nothing groundbreaking. and this is I, I wish I could make it sound novel because one of the things that makes information and health information popular is if it sounds novel and shiny and mm-hmm. new. But really, we're talking about understanding that you need fiber uh, for your residents
1: and I think it's worth spelling out what fiber is. It's not just um, you know, whole grain wheat
0: cereal for breakfast. <laughs> no, no absolutely and and that so fibre or NSP non-starch polysaccharide or the 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 undigestible but fermentable portion of plant foods um, and it's a rate there are many different types of fibre I suppose is, is a really important point so again yes it's not just whole grain wheat but the more varieties that you can get and it can come in um, kind of gel form and um is is really important so whether you're getting that from whole grains um from other cereals and rices and grasses things like that um from fruits and vegetables guavas and pears and apples which are rich in a type of fiber called pectin cranberries incredibly high in pectin as well other fruits and vegetables starchy tubers you know cassava and potatoes and sweet potatoes um all of those things, the the wider the var- variety of plant foods that you get in is going to give you the most diverse uh, gut microbiome and we of the little that we do know about the gut microbiome at the moment it seems that diversity is associated with better health outcomes Um, actually a new paper out by the sonnenbergs a little while ago demonstrated that the fastest way to improve the diversity and to increase the diversity of your gut microbiome is to include fermented foods as well so things like kefirs and kimchi and kvass and sauerkraut miso and that sort of stuff on a daily basis
1: you know i listened to a conversation you had with two young um female interviewers on uh, another bbc station five live um Mm. and i think i what i appreciated about that conversation what it got at was uh so we've we've gone we've had a pretty disordered relationship with food in general as it became more processed and we kind of forgot Mm. what we were eating Um, and now there's a new consciousness about food, which also is creating its own kind of disordered relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even – and so, you know, what you were just describing is, is familiar to some of us. And, you know, I am somebody who who tries to be really informed and I'm not alone. And And yet these new ways to kind of counteract – to do better um, can mm. also, I don't know. They can they can make this all again. Get away from that idea that that fundamental reality that when we talk about food, we're talking about life, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about nourishment. Um, how how do you how do you think about that? How how do you so again you you bake cakes and. You know what you know, and and you you also live. Um, I, I know you eat well. So oh. so, what can you offer in terms of kind of framing, perspective, on so that this doesn't feel like, yeah, more stress around food, <laughs> rather than the than the, mm-hmm. than the than the um than a corrective to mm-hmm. we have been mm-hmm. living.
0: I. I'm not sure that I feel like this should that that part of it is a joint effort, so I would really be directing that part of the conversation to policymakers um, and politicians mm-hmm. and saying that if you really care about the health of your nation and the health of your nation is your productivity and your GDP and your healthcare costs and your pension and your healthy old age. If you really care, then you will give people time to cook. (laughs) (laughs) And time to cook means not having to commute Huge distances in order to have work that pays well enough. It means not having to work several jobs in order to pay your rent. It means nutritious foods being affordable and perhaps incentivized. It means fuel costs being manageable for people on the lowest incomes. Because what we know is that, in, again, in the UK, people on the lowest incomes have to would have to pay forty percent of their disposable any disposable income just to reach the government's eat well guidelines, hmm. compared to something like eight percent for people on the wealthiest hmm. incomes and the wealthiest households. And so, the, the you know, I, I, there's really no point in having a conversation about healthy eating if we're not addressing how accessible and affordable it is for everyone. Because otherwise we just widen the inequality in access to healthcare by saying, well, the people who can afford to eat well, here is what you should do. And everybody else who can't, well, you know, please enjoy your food deserts and do the best you can. It's insulting. Um, And so I, I think time to eat, which to be honest, takes a big investment yeah, and, and it takes a very forward thinking government and a government really that is interested in the long term well-being of its nation rather than its own striving for glory and power. You know, it takes a, an actually invested uh, th- uh, philanthropic altruistic government that is invested in the longevity and the well-being of the nation rather than politicians out to feather their own nests and and have their names written on on the boards of history like and to be fair I'm not tremendously optimistic that we are in that era at the moment
1: you know I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, I don't I don't know that you that we're going to get there. But th- this, <laughs> I, I, I would like to ask you about mm. a couple of things that a couple of um, components of our bodies, neurotransmitters, that mm. that are words everyone knows now, connected to um, mental health, and I, I, but I, and I also think that. That there are more expansive ways to understand these things that you can kind of let us in on, and one mm-hmm. of them is serotonin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, how? Because I think a lot of people are. I think this is one thing a lot of us, and I also have, I have have had have had a serious clinical depression, and so I'm I'm very grateful for, um, you know. Antidepressant medita- medication, which worked for mm. me, um, but it's not simple, and we keep learning what we don't know.
0: Mm. No, it's it's not simple at all, and um, and and in fact, we're not tremendously sure what serotonin does. So the serotonin is a, a neurotransmitter, so a, a chemical messenger in the brain um, that is. Related to mood regulation, and it's not clear exactly how it works in terms of mood regulation. So, is it shifting the um, the activity at the synapses? Is you know nobody's entirely sure, um, but it's, it plays its role in mood regulation. And the serotonin hypothesis was a rather straightforward hypothesis, which is that you need serotonin in your brain in order to feel good and therefore if you have more you are you will feel better right. and if you do not have enough then you will feel worse and so the most Common antidepressant medications are SSRIs, so selective yeah. serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and they work by preventing essentially the recycling of serotonin. So a certain amount of serotonin will be released by the presynaptic neuron, or um, you know the f- neuron at the beginning of the synaptic cleft, and then the neurotransmitter that will drift across the gap and connect with the receptors on the receptor neuron. Um, And and then whatever's left over will be recycled by the first neuron. It goes back in and it it gets recycled. And so what SSRIs do is to reduce the amount of recyclings. And and so the theory is that it leaves more serotonin available for that second neuron, the receptor neuron, to pick up and to send on its message of feel goodness. However, that doesn't se- <laughs> seem to be the way that it works in practice um, and, and, and simply in, in the rate of treatment resistant depression, right? So that we're increasing the availability of serotonin in people's brains and it doesn't seem to be doing the trick, um, or at least not for everybody. And
1: you've also written about how... Uh nutrients how how serotonin to be
0: flourishing or doing what it mm-hmm. does best
1: actually needs nutrients support
0: yeah so in order to so when people think about the role of nutrition in in serotonin synthesis, they often think about tryptophan and absolutely tryptophan is essential. Tryptophan is an amino acid. So it's a kind of piece of a protein Mm -hmm. and it gets converted into serotonin and then onto into melatonin. Um, But in order to do that conversion, the brain requires other nutrients, vitamin C, phosphorus, um, I think B6, B9, in order to make that conversion, um, iron it needs. And so if you do not have those nutrients, then your synthesis is going to be impaired. So it's not simply about increasing the amount of tryptophan in order to increase or upregulate your synthesis of serotonin. It's not going to happen if you don't have adequate cofactors those additional nutrients that are required but the other thing and I did um, a series of videos on my Instagram about this for people about serotonin is the biggest thing probably that you can do to improve the function of serotonin in your body is to manage your stress and the reason sorry mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the reason that that's important is because Cytokines, which are signaling immune signaling molecules that are released in states of inflammation, can interfere with the pathway that takes tryptophan and converts it into serotonin. And what it can do, what cytokines can do, is to nudge tryptophan into a pathway, a metabolic pathway called kynurenine, and kynurenine. Then goes on and is converted in your microglia, which is a type of brain cell, into something called quinolinic acid. And quinolinic acid is neurotoxic. Ugh. So it's the... It, you may be upregulating. You may your brain may be awash in serotonin, or, or in tryptophan. If you're, it's, you know, lots of people take supplements of tryptophan, but if you've got high levels of cytokine activation, then you might simply be upregulating this kynurenine kind of pathway, and that's not going to be helpful.
1: And you know, again, some of the things that you prescribe for, for example minimizing stress or working with stress are mm. are things that are free. <laughs> Fresh air, natural light, mm-hmm. sleep, rituals, the quality of our relationships. Um, mm-hmm. you also talk about arguments for limiting exposure to the news as a therapeutic intervention. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I and I have to say like I or or probably to social media I'm, or those two things are synonymous these days. I have to say one of the most fascinating um, podcasts I listened to that you did was on dopamine, another Mm. neurotransmitter that we – is a word that we toss around. Um, I certainly associate dopamine with that dopamine hit one gets from getting a notification or going online, um, being on social media. It was absolutely terrifying and illuminating to hear you talk about the importance of dopamine – not as a high, but it just as it as the one of the things that helps us decide to get out of bed in the morning mm. um, that is uh, that helps with our overall pleasure in life and and what you explained is that dopamine is that is that what what disrupts dopamine or what plays with dopamine plays actually works mm. to diminish our the baseline of that mm. basic energy we have for life is that is that mm-hmm. is that a correct way that I've said that? And that to yeah. me, that to me is the biggest argument I've heard for working with ourselves and our children with these technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Forget about the fact that they're buying us; that they're treating us like consumers. They are messing with our baseline sense of well-being mm-hmm. on a minute-to-minute
0: basis, and and really augmenting how pleasurable everyday life feels, you know, how it feels just to be in your body walking down the street, Mm. how it feels to be sitting and talking to your friends. It's in a way that I don't think we fully understand. We haven't had a a full sense of the repercussions and the downstream effects at all. But uh, this, this constant opportunity to have validation you know "Mm, lovely piece of dopamine there or um a a, a quick piece of entertainment Mm -hmm. a a funny joke a sweet story all of those in a way which is a kind of binge like um pattern Mm -hmm. the question mark is what does that do to our ability to kind of sit and pay attention to someone in a conversation our ability to focus on a piece of work that we need to get done that doesn't seem particularly interesting in the moment, but is important for our long-term goals. I don't think we have that information in, but it's certainly something to be to be cautious about and to be wondering about. And then there's the kind of practical part, which is the, I think it's called the technoference, which is that simply having access or having your, your phone in sight, low, and particularly when you're talking about something of emotional meaning and resonance, lowers the quality of your interaction. Mm. So if you are sitting with somebody and your phone is there, just looking at your phone, knowing that it's there, lowers the quality of your connection with the person that's in front of you. Uh, that is that is deeply worrying
1: gravity. Um. Yeah, and I I want to test um, something out on you. This feeling mm-hmm. I have right now. I'm I'm also in my work really interested in how what goes on inside us, reflects outside us. Right, it reflects mm-hmm. in our presence in the world, reflects in our life together. And I I feel like you could look at so many things that are happening in the world that we have many ways to analyze and say that. That our individual nervous systems and our collective mm-hmm. nervous system, mm-hmm. that these things are in massive distress. And, mm-hmm. and, right, we are in a civilizational fight, flight, freeze uh, mm-hmm. moment. Um, but I,
0: yeah, so I
1: don't know. I test mm. that out on you
0: no that's a that's a really interesting idea and there's um there's a researcher called captain Joe Hibble, which is just a fantastic name to start with yeah. um and but he has this um what's the word like an anthropologic understanding he has an he takes an anthropologic look at the role of fish oils um <laughs> in 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 the world and so for example he he says you know the the symbol for Christianity is the fish, right? Yeah. Um, And is it somehow this piece of collective unconscious, this understanding that there's something about this food, which is associated with calm, which is associated with clear thinking, which is associated with peacefulness (laughs) that gets translated in this symbol. And I, and whether you think that's valid or not, it's a very interesting idea because, you know, bringing it back to the prison studies, this is what we see. You know, you improve people's nutrition with new vitamins and minerals and these fatty acids. And they become calmer and they're more able to think more clearly and they have this distance between the antecedents and their behavior. They have a little moment where they can choose their response. And Mm -hmm. if there's anything that is going to be conducive to to our solving of our collective problems, it's the capacity to sit down. To manage our emotions and engage with minds that are different from us, but what that absolutely requires is that our brains are working well. Yeah. You know, in order to solve humanity's problems, many as they are, what we need are well-functioning brains. And the big worry for me and and lots of people like me who are kind of looking at this research, is that the way that we're living and the way that we're eating is effectively and persistently undermining the quality of our brain architecture and therefore the our ability to think and process and problem solve.
1: Hmm. That's so um, uh, startlingly articulated. Something else that occurs to me when I think about this the connections, the connectivity, the interactivity that you're um, seeing and 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 sharing um, the microbiome, the the vagus nerve, um, the the direction that that goes, often body to brain and not just brain to body. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the language that we've used, I think this I think this language of wholeness, right? what what do you say whole body mental health that we mm-hmm. um I feel like I feel like uh, our descendants will look at a phrase like mind body spirit and think how quaint and primitive <laughs> that was right like those were separate <laughs> compartments and you could be working yeah. with one of them and put the other one to one side and that's fascinating right that mind mm. and body and spirit emotions conscience behavior consciousness um there's i don't know if there's a there's a trauma specialist named Resma Menicam who's worked a lot with racialized trauma in the body in mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. really 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 mm-hmm. important and wonderful ways and he calls the vagus nerve the soul nerve
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i i think this is this has been the real contribution of uh, again another relatively young field of study called psychoneuroimmunology mm-hmm. because one of the things that we understand so if we're thinking about depression and if you look at the causes the known risk factors of depression you know it is parental illness or parental stress it is poverty it is um uh, Adverse childhood experiences. It's experiences of trauma, of accidents, of, of physical injury. So there's this plethora of events and behaviours and actions and relationships that lead to a, an increased risk of depression. But what seems to underlie all of these things is this stress system modulated activation of the immune system right yeah. Yeah. all of those factors switch on your stress hormones your immune cells have receptors for your stress hormones your immune cells get activated and with chronic activation of your immune system that can lead to you know to get a bit technical the the loosening of the tight junctions in the blood, blood brain barrier Cytokines cross over and you've got neuroinflammation and depression. So all of these things come together. We cannot think of them separately from the body. If if you're saying the thing that's causing you depression is is the quality of your relationship, that's not outside of you. Mm -hmm. It's the way in which your body is permeable to the environment, that the environment is affecting you on a cellular level, and that that is affecting your mood and how you feel and how you perceive the world, because the way you look at the world changes when your mood changes. So, yes, it's, it's, it's going to be a kind, of, um, a kind of ridiculous hangover, a kind of antiquated way of thinking about the world Is to think of these things as separate. And I think the sooner we can start to think of them as integrated and therefore to start treating them as yeah. integrated, the better off we will all be. So my final question
1: is just: I wonder mm. how this this large human question, um, the ancient enduring question of what it means to be human, um, mm. just so curious about how just right now you'd start speaking about how your sense of that is is evolving, um, <laughs> uh, given all of what you what you what you watch and what you see and what you study and what mm. you do. Mm.
0: Um, I think increasingly my sense is of seeing myself in context. Mm. So seeing myself as a link in the chain of humanity rather than a kind of standout self-made island of a human Um in a, in this very individualistic way that we're encouraged to see ourselves you know i am the most recent link in the chain that stretches back hundreds of thousands of years before me and to embrace the humility in that because one of the things you know right we've spent the last hour talking about cutting edge science and understandings of of the brain and and emotion but we have to understand that we will be somebody else's history. And someone in a hundred years might listen back to this and think, oh, they knew nothing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yes, they will think that. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. And so to kind of, you know, have a conversation with your ego and and have some humility and, and in doing that, keeping yourself open to new ideas, not fusing too much to your beliefs, and, you know, to kind of tread lightly, to hold things lightly, to tread lightly, to be interested and to do all things as kindly as possible so as to not make life harder for other people mm-hmm. than it need be. And for me, I think that is all at the moment that I can ask of myself.
1: Do you think that you kind of walk through down the street or through your life differently with this with this understanding that you have of of your second brain, which is your mm. your understanding of that is more developed than in most of us, the mm. or the or, or the or the fact that you are my, more microbial than human cells <laughs> at, at any given time, do, do, does that register in, in in you in concrete ways?
0: Sometimes. So yes and no. So um, this week, uh, last week, I was um, I was furiously angry, at stomping around London at, at lunchtime um, over something that I knew, even at the time, even in the, you know, within the cloud of my rage was just a minor inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to work it out. So, you know, I did, I had I'd managed to hold on to enough of my thinking apparatus to be like this seems like an outsized response to a minor inconvenience um what's going on and i realized it was simply that i was very hungry Mm -hmm. and i needed to have some lunch and then my cortisol dropped and i was i felt better so i still get caught out by this thing and and i think that's really important to understand which is that we're not rational with you know humans love to think that we're rational human beings but our decisions our feelings our behaviors our actions towards other people might be a affected by unconscious qualitative information that's coming through our bodies that we're acting upon. Mm. So that's always something to hold on to. And so that really drives, I guess what you might call my activism or, or the things at least that I talk about, which is that if we're thinking about the justice system and culpability for one's actions, then are we taking into consideration the state of that person's brain or the yeah. quality of their body right. their habitual nutrition and the potential contribution of that in their decision making it's an enormous question but the fact that it's an enormous question shouldn't mean that it's a question that we run and hide from it should be a question that we we try to at least think about and engage with because really that we're talking about fundamental inequalities that a child simply by biver- virtue Virtue of being born poor or not having adequate nutrition is much more likely to have negative life consequences to have uh, poor academic academic outcomes to have less opportunity in the job market because their brain isn't working as well as it could do this is a fundamental social inequality nutrition is a social justice issue Mm. and again a government that really cares about improving the overall well-being of its nation must engage with this question
1: well I, this, there's so much here. Thank you so much. Is there anything <laughs> else you would want to say about the kind of gut-brain axis? I, I feel like we... Is there anything um, else that you just feel like needs to be explained or is worth elaborating um, on?
0: What would I want people, For people to know? people to I walk would... around with it as knowledge. Yeah. I, I guess I would want people to just bear in mind that the way you're feeling is anchored in your body and so the a very practical place to start if you're feeling bad and you can't place it you know sometimes you you, you have a few days where you're just feeling just not good and you can end up running through your mind trying to blame work or your partner <laughs> or your kids you can you know you can run through your mind trying to find this outside of you reason for it and actually, and I've seen this in clinic, it can be something that's happening internally, literally to you on, on a physical level. You could be coming down with something. Maybe you're not eating very well. You've had a patch where you've just been undernourished. Maybe you're hungry and you don't realise it. You've been kind of underfueling for these particular demands. You're going through a stressful time and you haven't um, accommodated for your nutrition during that period. So a very practical... Place to start is what's ha- what is happening in my body. How well slept am I? Am I hydrated? How have I been eating in the last couple of days? Can I attend to those things and then see how I'm feeling?
1: Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for your work. I'm delighted to meet you.
0: My um, pleasure. Um, thank you so so much for having me. Oh,
1: and um, I'm going to turn you back to Chris to make okay. sure that we capture this, and I will continue to be listening. And we'll let you know what's happening with this. Just thank you so much for making the time.
0: Pleasure. Thank you, Krista.
1: Bye. Bye.